Well, it is uh, good to be together again this morning as we wrap up our Church Essentials series. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to, to grab it, pull it out, uh, whether it's you know paper or on your phone or iPad or whatever else. There are some Bibles in the middle of the room. If you need one, by all means, uh, grab one. And I'll just point you there because this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. And as I mentioned last week, if you were here, for a bunch of the scripture readings, we're just going to put the references on the screen, but not actually all the verses on the screen. And this is a very uh, deliberate act by the one that made the slides. Uh, because first of all, it saves John a little bit of work from clicking through you know, lots of scripture slides. And that's okay. He's good at it. He can do it if he wants to. But we want to become more comfortable and more familiar with flipping through our actual Bibles. And so that's really the point. And if you've got your Bible open in front of you, or your version, or your Bible app, or whatever it is in front of you, chances are, if it's in front of you and you're not just reading off the screens, maybe you'll retain a little bit more. Maybe you'll even you know, drag a finger and highlight stuff or add a note or whatever else. So this is to try and encourage us to be actually in our Bibles. So we are wrapping up our series we've called uh, the four G's. And these four G's are gather, go, give, and grow. And you can see sort of the the text that we have pulled these ideas from in this time. And we've said that that these aren't just Trinity-specific essentials to how we organize ourselves and and do church here. But rather, uh, these are could be applied to any church congregation anywhere. But even more than that, these, we believe that these are things that define the human experience regardless of what you believe. These are actually things that, that, that are essential to being human, we've said. We were created to, to be with one another, to gather into community. We were designed to, to go and to reflect who God is, to, to model who He is. We were created to uh, be generous and sacrificial with our time and talent and treasure. We are created to always be growing, always learning, and specifically growing in our relationship with God. So we've got a lot to cover here this morning as we look at this idea of growing. So let me read our text. Uh, It's Mark 12, verse 28 to 34. And if you've grabbed one of the Bibles in the middle, it's either on page 495, or if you've got the older printing, it's somewhere later than that. Let me read for us Mark 12, starting at verse 28. One of the scribes came up. And heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one. There's no one beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, this uh, may be a familiar passage if you've been around a church gathering before. It's the one called the Great Commandment. And chances are you've heard these verses maybe preached or, or read or heard or definitely heard them referenced sort of off the cuff. 
So the hard thing about coming to a familiar passage is that sometimes we let our familiarity with a section of the text obscure or sort of hide some pretty obvious things that are there. Maybe we assume that we know everything that's in these verses because we've heard them preached a handful of times before. Maybe we've taught them ourselves in a Bible study or to our kids or something. And so when they show up on the screen, our minds just start to drift towards the drifts or lunch or whatever else. As one who's teaching, it's also kind of tricky to to teach a familiar text because I recognize you've probably read this one before. Chances are you've heard it even preached before. And so the tendency out of my own pride, if I'm perfectly honest, is to try try to find some new and super insightful nugget that will just blow you away and you'll be like, yeah, that's Sean. He's so great. What a great guy. But I don't want to do that because it's really then at that point you start to maybe sort of finesse things into the text that aren't really there. And that's not what I want to do. Let me suggest maybe another alternative that these texts, the, uh, the really familiar ones, maybe it's just better to assume that we just need regular reminders of what they're saying. And so we, we come to these familiar texts, these common ones, as something like a charging station, like the Tesla superchargers in the parking lot next door. You, you, your batteries get a little low, you come to these familiar ones, you get charged up, and you, you head back out. Maybe let's approach this that way. Let's jump in. Uh, a question for you first. You don't have to raise your hand, but you're welcome to. Who in the room likes checklists or to-do lists? A couple, maybe, I'm not sure, a very emphatic yes at the back. There's something about checklists and to-do lists that just, there's something about it. And some, I like the occasional checklist myself. There's something about crossing something off or checking it off that just makes it feel like you're making progress, right? Even if, here's a pro tip if you haven't thought of this, at the bottom of your list or the start of the list, write, make a list. Check that one off and already you're doing something, right? Now, it's easy for us to come to a passage like this where Jesus says, here is the most important thing and look at it like a checklist because Jesus gives us a four-point list, doesn't he? What are we supposed to do? Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Okay, somehow I've got to figure out how to get my emotions into this. Okay, uh, love the Lord your God with all your soul. Okay, how do we, I, I don't know necessarily what that looks like. Love the Lord your God with your mind. Love that one. I can read, I can study, I can put stuff on the shelf. Okay, and strength, uh, tricky one. Uh, how do we love the Lord with all our strength? Maybe it's salvaging a kitchen and carrying it into a garden shed, totally hypothetically. Doing that for Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is not, he's not giving us a checklist. And what God was saying through Moses in the Old Testament in the text that we opened up with was, was you are supposed to love the Lord your God with all of you, all of who you are, all of the time. This isn't a checklist. This is the, the, the comprehensive nature of how we're to love God. All of who we are, all the time. He's saying there's nothing more important than you loving God. Now, that might be exactly what you expected me to say when you saw that this is the text we were on this morning. So, great. But as we've said, sometimes these familiar passages obscure some obvious things. So let me point out three things that might be sort of hidden in this text because we know it well. And I'm helped by a few other authors and and speakers as well, of course. Especially as we come to this text within the context of what it means to grow. as part of the four G's, right? Gather, go, give, and now grow. So, the first thing. This passage here actually tells us something about what God is like. 
Something that often gets raised by people who oppose Christian, Christianity or maybe walked away from the faith is, is a question like this. If God is actually good, why does he command us to love him? And I think this question, it's a, it's a great question. And it comes from us trying to fit God into our framework for human relationships. If I go and I say to my wife or kids, hey, love me. That doesn't build the relationship that well. It doesn't go over that well. And so it seems weird that God's greatest command to us is exactly that. You have to love me. But let me suggest that there's a slightly different way that we should understand uh, not only this commandment, but ultimately all of the commandments. And it goes back to the very beginning. See, God created everything. He created the entire physical universe. He created everything around us, all that we, we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, everything. Everything that we sense, God created. But even more that, in order to uphold that, God created the laws that govern that physical universe. The laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the ideas that become language and art. Everything, not just in the physical universe, but everything that supports the physical universe. It was all created by God. And then we can take it one step further than that, that even the relationships between those things were created by God. How those things interact and inform one another. For example... God created colors. We had a paint day in our kitchen table yesterday, and God created those colors and how they mixed and how they spilt and how they were wiped up and, and all these things, and they, they, how the colors interact with one another to form new colors and how they become pleasing to our eyes as we see these things. God also created our ears and then also music that is pleasing to our ears. God created my hands and my wife's hands. And somehow, even though these kind of chunky fingers and knuckles that have been smashed and squished, they just kind of lock just right with her hand. And when they wrap together and hold, there's a feeling of contentment and safety and love that's attached to that. See, God created all of those things. The universe, the laws that govern the universe, the relationships between different things in the universe. And he did that as an expression of his character. He created these things to help show us who he is and what he loves. Now, God didn't have to do it this way. He could have created some sort of a a bland, sterile, joyless, but functional environment. Uh, I always try and reference The Matrix when we talk about this. And if you remember the movie The Matrix, which is now dating those of us who remember it. There's a scene where, where they pull Keanu Reeves out of life where everything is as we expect into the, the ship and they're, they're eating this meal meal that looks like bland oatmeal. And oatmeal is bland to begin with, but like, no, this is everything you need to survive. And it's just this, this sterile, boring world. So God could have created the world that way, some way that was technically livable, but without joy, right? without steak and potatoes, without whatever. But he didn't. Instead, God created a world that can be enjoyed. And even if we, uh, maybe not this minute because the mountains are slightly clouded in, but if we look out the windows and up at the surroundings that we're in, if we look around at the people around us, we can actually see something about God in them. So God created the world in such a way that it would reflect who he is. Now, what does that have to do with this command to love him? Well, God created us as well as an expression of himself. 
The Bible calls this being made in his image. Now, uh, a few years ago, St. Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So God made us, and when he did so, he made us not just to reflect his character, but also to define the relationship that we're supposed to have with him. In the way the universe is supposed to work, what we called last week the grain of the universe, as we, we go along with the grain of the universe, we are supposed to function within this world in a relationship with God. And so God is meant to be the thing that pleases our souls and satisfies our deepest longings. And so this command to love him isn't just an iron fist, you should do this, but it's rather describing who we are and how we were made to be and how we were made to love him. This also implies something really important that we see throughout scripture, but here as well, uh, that God is a person. We're not saying God is a human, but God is a divine and a person, not just some sort of ethereal concept of something floating around that we're trying to pin down, but there's something about God that that he is a person. And so when we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking one God in three persons. Sometimes this uh, theology of the Trinity is confusing, and it's hard to really pin down how to properly describe it, but the, the... biggest part of this is that we've got God as person. And so what does that mean? How does that affect this? It means that how we, or what we know about how we create and and invest in human relationships can also inform how we might relate to a divine person. Obviously, there are differences between how we relate to humans and to God, but there's something to learn about how we interact with one another and how we can interact with people. So if you think about a relationship that you're investing in, a human one, a friend you're getting to know better, a spouse, whatever, how do you know them better? Talk to them. We listen to them. We spend time with them. We get to know their stories. We have shared experiences that, that, that shape and strengthen the bond between us. We remember and we celebrate and we grieve and we, we pay attention to one another. We think about them. We wonder about them. And we introduce them to people that we love. And so this command to love God with your everything all the time is to be what we are meant to be and to experience the relationship that we were meant to experience. But... If it's who we are meant to be and the relationship we are meant to experience, why does this have to be a command then? Why does God have to come right out and say, listen, the most important thing you have to do is love me? Well, maybe especially in our day, it's because there are a lot of other voices trying to tell us what the most important relationship in our life should be. There's a lot of other stories, a lot of other narratives that are trying to define for us who we are and what we were made for and what it means to be human and what all of our relationships should look like. And because sin in the, has entered the world, all relationships are hard work and all relationships require intentional effort and attention. Now our relationships are hard because we're sinful, we're broken people and broken people with broken people, it's just a messy thing. So God's command to love him is simply the command to be who he's made us to be and do what he's made us to do. It's a calling back to what is essential about us as humans. So the first thing we can learn from this passage is that God is a person and God is the person we were most uniquely created to be in relationship with. The second thing is this. This passage tells us something about who we are. 
tells us about who God is, tells us about who we are as well. In the 17th century, French philosopher René Descartes famously said something that has shaped history since then. He said, I think, therefore I am. And if you haven't heard of Descartes before, heard this before, uh, chances are you have heard it, but it has absolutely shaped who you are. It's fundamentally shaped Western culture since it was originally written or spoken. See, what happened after Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, is that people started to believe that. They're like, okay, because I can think, because I can form a sentence, because I can form an argument, uh, this isn't just something we should put on coffee mugs or tweet, but this is something that has shaped uh, who we are as a culture. This is an identity-forming statement. His point was saying, listen, because I think, because I can make an argument, that defines my reality. And so out of that, Western world, we've started to consider ourselves as primarily thinking things. The most important part of who we are is that we are cognitive and rational beings that think our way through life. Maybe this is how we primarily think of ourselves in the room as well. Mostly, primarily rational, primarily cognitive, logical. We can make a series of logical decisions that will carry us through life. But let me suggest this isn't true. This isn't the the most important or the primary thing about us. And that's becoming more and more evident in our culture because so often what we know, what we think, is trumped by our desires. Our logic is trumped by our feelings. An example, maybe a silly one, but nevertheless... I know that if I go out for dinner and it's a buffet or something, you know, one plate's probably enough. But there's so many options. And the plates are just there. And then there's a dessert bar. And when there's that much dessert, I'm going to keep going. I know that it's going to hurt. I know that it's, you know, I'm going to have to wear sweats for the next while to deal with that. But, but I just want it. Okay? Well, silly, perhaps, but the uh, chuckle suggests you can identify with it. So, if the great commandment is true, then it actually makes sense that we are not primarily thinking beings. Otherwise, the greatest commandment would be know God, not love God. Right? Those are two very different things. If we were primarily thinking things, then Jesus probably would have defined the greatest commandment as the one all the other commandments hang on as know God and know your neighbor. But that's not what he says, is it? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so because the greatest commandment makes sense and because it connects with what we know in our daily reality, we are not primarily thinking things, although it is important about us, but rather we are desiring things. We are hearted things and we're driven by our hearts and our desires. Let me ask a bit of a probing question that will bring some clarity here. If you're a follower of Jesus and and you know kind of right and wrong and know what sin is, how much of your sin, if you look back at however long you want to look at, is a result of a lack of knowledge? On a day-to-day basis, how often do you sin because of an incomplete or a bad theology? Maybe sometimes. But do we act selfishly or, or greedily or harshly because we don't know that's wrong? Do we lie, cheat, or steal because we don't know it's bad? No, 
If I consider my own sin over the past however long, I know that, that I do those things knowing full well that they're wrong. Instead, I do those things, even though I know it's not God's best for me, I do them anyways. Because I want it. My heart wants it, for whatever reason. And somehow, if, if somehow right before some morning when I get up and groggily come down to the breakfast table and I'm overtired and hungry and, and a little bit grumpy, and I'm just about ready to snap at the kids who are climbing all over me while I'm trying to eat my mini-wheats, and someone stepped in and said, hey, listen, just before you lash out at your kids here, would you say that snapping at them is the theologically correct thing to do in this moment? Will this build them up? Obviously, it's not, but it's how I want to act because I'm grouchy and selfish. So the idea that we are primarily, primarily cognitive and logical and rational beings kind of breaks down when we apply that to real life. We are actually driven by our desires and our passions. And when we disobey, we disobey primarily, usually, because at that moment we desire something more than God. Or what God wants for us. Now we can read the Bible from beginning to end. And throughout it we find one word used in particular to describe this reality. And that word is idolatry. Now idolatry is when we make something that isn't God into a God in our lives. When we deify, when we make something into God that's not divine, uh, not divine the Bible calls that idolatry. We know theologically that, that all humans are created to worship, created to desire. And this isn't just a, a Christian idea, but it's a human idea. We're constantly looking for something to give our lives to. Something to, to, to lead to something, to give us meaning, to give us purpose, and to define our reality. It's kind of the default mode for our heart. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who's, who's not a Christian, he wrote this. He said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, remember, he's not a Christian, says, the only compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is pretty much that everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified into myths and proverbs and cliches and epigrams and parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. What a fascinating quote. He's saying, listen, the default mode is that we can't not worship. That you can't not give your life to something. Whether it's career or money or spouse or family or whatever it is, everybody worships. Now remember, we've said that worship isn't just bowing down to some small little carved idol in the corner necessarily. But rather, it's the thing, the thing we worship is the thing that we define our life by. 
It's the thing that gives us meaning and purpose. It's that thing that we pursue no matter what the consequences are. That's the thing we worship. Now, for some of us, we sacrifice relationships or family for career and money, just trying to get a little bit more, chasing that elusive amount that is enough. For others of us, we wake up and we look in the mirror in the morning and we give ourselves a little wink and a snap and say, you know what, I still got this. But if we define ourselves by how we look every day as we age, and there's maybe a couple less hairs up top, we lose something of ourselves. And we say, ultimately, I am worse today than yesterday. Not I look worse, but I am worse. There's any number of identities that we can cling to. Student, employee, boss, athlete, spouse, friends, whatever. And as long as those identities are propped up, then we're okay. But when they start to fade or crumble, we lose our sense of value and worth and purpose. And both David Foster Wallace and the Bible say this happens to everyone. It's something everyone us can, every one of us can look to every single day. And I think the key thing he writes there is in that last line, that the whole trick is keeping that truth that we are worshipers up front in our daily consciousness. The trick is reminding ourselves that every day we are worshiping and to pay attention to what it is that our hearts are desiring, what it is that depresses us, what it is that's out there that has the power to do something to us. And we have to pay attention to those things or that thing. And that's why God's greatest commandment is to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, every piece of what it means to be us. Because God knows that He created created us to love something all the time wherever, whenever, whatever we are. He knows that anything other than Him in that place in our lives will ultimately destroy us or eat us alive, as Wallace says. Now, uh, in that David Foster Wallace quote, he gives a long list of options of things that may not let us down, but let me say this, of the list that he gave, only one of those people came to die for you. Only one of the people on that list love you so much that he said, uh, instead of saying, here's a list of things to do, sort yourself out and then come follow me. Or here's a way to prove yourselves. Here's a list of truths and principles that if you do them well enough, then just maybe you can come to me. Only Jesus came and said, listen, you can't do this on your own. So let me do it for you because I love you and I want to be with you. Only Jesus did that. And because of that, we can confidently say that he's worth it. Far above everything else. We will crave relationship and we will pursue it in all things and at all times. The third thing we see here in this passage. We said the passage tells us something about who God is. It tells us something about who we are. And the third thing we see here is that it actually tells us this. That if these things are true, what it tells us about who God is and who we are then it fundamentally changes the way we do discipleship. It changes things in two ways. It changes the way that we follow Jesus as a disciple, and it changes the way we lead others to be disciples. Now, the general mission statement of the universal church is to be disciples who make disciples, so this applies everywhere here. Theologian James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and then he writes this, Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. 
Now, especially in the last maybe 15, 20 years or so, discipleship has become kind of a, a buzzword in Christian circles and has got maybe a bunch of definitions. Some are maybe fuzzier and more clear than others. Uh, but it's, it's paying attention to what your heart desires. It's, it's where your heart is leading you. It's, it's looking at what your heart is craving and how we are satisfying those longings in our hearts. And if I'm honest, I don't often think about discipleship this way, with this language of inspecting my heart. But Smith says, if we are truly heart-oriented people, if we are desiring people, and our greatest end is to be in a relationship with God, then it follows that discipleship ought to be the heart-oriented pursuit of relationship with God. But that's maybe not always the case for us, is it? Often when we think about discipleship, we either think about kind of growing in head knowledge or, or doing things, obeying God. Even right now, when we think about what it means to grow from the four Gs, we think, okay, if I want to grow, if I read more Bible and I obey it better, then I'm probably growing. Those are good things. They're measurable things. They're necessary things. But let me suggest that, that those might actually be secondary things. That there are sort of effects more than the causes of growth. And actually, if we focus on just them, we can actually negatively affect our ability to grow in our relationship with God. Let me try and explain that a bit. If we are just trying to learn things about God, that's only valuable in how much it helps us to love God and love our neighbors. If we're just building head knowledge it's not as good as if it actually leads to something. Studying theology is only really valuable if it lights a fire in our hearts to want to love God and love others more. Now, this is the greatest commandment. So loving God and loving others may be the only reason God has revealed himself to us. It's why he gave us the Bible. It's why he sent Jesus to die for us. He's why he sent the Holy Spirit to convict and illuminate and lead us. Now, that doesn't mean that knowledge is worthless or a waste of our time, but unless that pursuit of knowledge uh, is, is, serves the goal of loving God and loving others, it can just be a functional idol in our lives. Look at the books I read this week. Look at this stuff that I know. Meaning it's more about us and not actually about Him. If the goal is just to know stuff. Similarly, if obeying God is it's only ultimately valuable when it's done out of a love for Him or in response to what is lovely about Him. Grudging obedience isn't true obedience. And so if we're only obeying so that others can see how well we're obeying, that's not about God, that's again about us. And again, to be clear, any sort of obedience does have value as we align ourselves with who God is and what He's done and how He's created things to work. But ultimately, obedience is of most value when it's done for Him. And it's important for us to to grasp this because there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. and There's nothing we can do that would make God love us any less. He already loves us the most. There's nothing more important than our relationship with God. Uh, Paul famously wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He's saying, you can be super spiritual, you can do all the right things, but if you're not loving, you've completely missed the point. You can know lots of stuff, but if you don't love, it's worthless. 
You can obey and sacrifice and give to the poor, but if you don't love others, that too is worthless. He says if we miss the love piece, the rest of all of this is just a waste of time. Yet again, that's often the way we have experienced discipleship, and it undercuts this reality, doesn't it? Often we assume if, if we just have, if I just listen to another sermon, if I just give my kids or teach one more sermon, give them one more information dump, that will affect what they think about God and how they spur on to action. Or if we look at disobedience, if we just do some behavior modification, chances are the behavior will change and that will somehow backtrack to them loving Jesus better or me loving Jesus better. And I know that's how I've viewed it a lot in the past. That's how I've been discipled in the past. Oh, you've got this issue? Read this scripture. Read this book. Okay. But if we've established that we're not primarily thinking beings, but we're rather desiring beings, then we have to target the heart. Because often the heart is the problem. We know the information. We can practically do the things, but our hearts hijack the process to do what they want. So just adding more information or just adjusting our behavior won't make us love God more. And I think we know this as well when it comes to our human relationships. You don't get into a deep, meaningful relationship with someone simply by seeing the facts. If I handed you a brochure of Sean with an Excel spreadsheet in there of all the information of, well, he's, he's about six foot one and a half, he's this many pounds, his shoe size is this. You know, well, he's a great guy. I really know him all that well. Right? We, we don't do that. We actually have to know something about people. There's a, there's a relationship. So we need both the, the knowledge and the love piece. They work together. The more we know about someone, may increase our love for them. And as we love them, that increases our desire to want to know them better. It's that kind of cycle. And that's how it works with God too. When the knowledge is aimed at our hearts, it's only then that we can be changed. Because love is what changes us. So, how do we do this as we head towards a, a bit of a close? The good news is it's actually not all that complicated. The same way that we would develop a relationship with a person, we can do the same thing to develop our relationships with God. Spend some time, add some attention, do some listening, share some experiences, obviously grow in knowledge as well. When we talk about, spirit, about building our relationship with God, we often give it a name like spiritual disciplines, which can actually sound kind of daunting, but it's the same thing. Sometimes the name spiritual discipline can obscure the simplicity of what we're talking about here. We're just trying to build a relationship. It's how we're already working on our hearts in other relationships with other people, with our friends, with spouses, whoever. So let me really quickly uh, run through five spiritual disciplines for us to, to help encourage us in a way to pursue a relationship at a heart level with God. First, maybe foremost, scripture reading. It's amazing to think that God chose to reveal himself through a story not an Excel spreadsheet or bullet points. He revealed himself to us in time, in history, in relationships, so that we might know him. There's a difference between the the bullet point of God is all-powerful, okay, I've got that knowledge in my head, and a story that starts with, there was a time when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Let me tell you what happened. You see that he's all-powerful, but it's totally different. Even if we want to look at the Ten Commandments, which is about as close to a checklist as we've got in the Bibles, look at how it starts in Exodus 20. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Here's the story. Therefore, do these things. He reminds them of the story. The commandments, even the bullet points, if you want to call them that, are rooted in story and relationship. So we need to know the story. Second, prayer. Prayer. 
We can talk to God about anything and everything. That was part of the reason we walked through the Psalms through the summer. Talk about our day. Talk about our feelings. Stay connected with them. Use normal language. Maybe you need permission. I know that I did at one point. You don't actually have to speak old King James English when you talk to God. Just talk. It's fine. Talk about the real things. Talk about what's, what's going on with you. If you don't know what to say, you can turn to some of the Psalms again like we did this summer. Or you can go, and go back through the Christian tradition and see some just amazing little prayers that can help keep us connected. Uh, one I came across this week that we can just kind of speak to, speak to God is, is called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And just, like, there's, there's a ton in there. Okay, who is Jesus? What does it mean for him to be Lord? What does it mean for him to be Son of God? What does it mean to be asking for mercy? And it's like, it just shapes us. It builds a conversation. The third thing, maybe 3A and B, kind of this space of listening and silence. This one takes a ton of work. I I'll admit that for me especially maybe because we live in an increasingly noisy world and the distractions are everywhere. This actually requires some intentional disconnection of clearing out the noise and finding some time to intentionally be quiet with the Lord. Have you ever noticed when it's absolutely quiet? If you can, and this, like it, it rattles me to be in the quiet, quiet. But all of a sudden when it's quiet, our ears strain to hear something and you can hear your breath. A couple of years ago, I went up uh, Spray Lakes Road to take some pictures at night. It was moonlight, it was about midnight. And I got up to the lakes and there was nothing around. And my ears were just burning, trying to find something to hear. In that moment, we can be reminded that, that every breath that we hear is a gift from God. And frankly, being alone with yourself can be terrifying because we come face to face with ourselves and we can't just sort of mute or drown out or distract ourselves from, from, from the noise that's been distracting us or, or the, the dealing with the stuff in our hearts. It's kind of inviting God into, into that is, is another level. We've got to slow down and do that. And it will take work to hear God communicate with us. You know this in any relationship. Maybe the, the marriage relationship is one where you think you're communicating clearly, but it just doesn't go clearly and doesn't get you know, heard clearly. But even if God is communicating clearly to us, it takes practice for us to, to hear that. But he has created us to hear. He's created us for a relationship. Fourth, uh, we need to be in community. We need to be with other people. For better or worse, people reflect back to you who you are. Uh, kids do a great job of this, I've found. How did they learn that? That's, that's not what I wanted to see. It's actually a really hard thing, I think. Well, for me, anyways, I'll speak for myself. It's a tricky thing to think of ourselves accurately. Some of us do a great job of thinking too highly of ourselves. Got it all together. Life's going great. Other of us have the opposite problem. We think of ourselves too lowly and we just can't see that we, you know, I'm stuck in the same place I've been for the last 10, 15, 20 years. And so we need people around us to shape both of those, to help us see our blind spots. Sean, you think you've got it all together, but look at this massive area that you're just not looking at. Or Sean, look, you have grown this much in the last number of years. We need people around us to help us see our blind spots and to remind us of the ways that we've grown. And this is especially true in our relationship with God. We need people to point those things out for us. This is why we talk about getting into groups. So tie this in with the scripture reading part. There's some Bible reading plans at the back. Find a couple guys, find a couple girls, meet with them regularly, study the Bible together, pray for one another's hearts. It doesn't have to be super formal. It doesn't have to take a whole evening. It doesn't have to take a whole day. Take a lunch break. Take an hour for breakfast and just, just be together. 
If you want to get in a group but don't know where to start, just ask. If you want some help, chat with me. I'd love to try and help organize that or help you connect with others who are looking for that community as well. And finally, the fifth of our little list here is evangelism, which is sometimes another really loaded, heavy, daunting-sounding word. But it's just sharing the ultimate loveliness of God with others. It's, it's telling stories of who God is and what he's done. It's in that moment where someone says, well, how are you dealing with this? It's like, well, I've built my life on God's love, and this is how it's affected this. When we do this, when we share the ultimate loveliness of God, we, we find common ground. We, again, we have to be in a relationship. We use our story to connect with someone else's story. We use our story, our testimony of what God has done in our life, the, the shared experience we have with Him, knowing that the ways that we have been blessed by God, chances are we'll bless someone else too, even if they don't yet know Him. And it takes practice to do this. It takes practice to share these things. But here's the brilliant thing. The more we talk about all the ways God has been good to us, the more we actually remind ourselves of the same thing, of how we too fell in love with God. God is the most transcendent, powerful, impressive, and important being in the universe. We're all completely dependent on Him, which is what makes this so incredible, that God wants to be in a relationship with us. That's the beauty of the gospel. He wants to be in a relationship with us, and He wants to use us to be in a relationship with others too. And that's what makes David Foster Wallace's list not super helpful because there's only one there who's big and powerful and transcendent, yet with us, came to die for us, and wants a normal relationship with us. As we wrap this up, all this is to say we, we get what we aim for. If you aim for just trying to learn more stuff about God, you'll probably learn more stuff about God and it may just get stuck in your head. If you aim for a behavior modification, okay, if I'm going to stop doing this and start doing this, then you'll probably just get that too. But if you aim for your heart, if you aim to change your desires, then you actually will change what you love. And when you love, you want to know more of God. And when you know more of God, you want to love Him more. And the cycle will carry on. And in that process, we will be conformed to His image, will fulfill the great commandment to love God and love others and be who we are created to be and do what we are created to do. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for these last few weeks where we've walked through these four G's of gather, go, give, and grow. Jesus, thank you that you are worth it, that you are the thing to build our life on. Thank you that there is no one higher, no one better, no one bigger. Jesus, that you are Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace, and yet you're with us and you love us. God, again, I ask that you would draw our hearts to you. That you would help us to change not just our knowledge or our behavior, but our desires. You would draw our desires to you. Help us to know and love you more each day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.